Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes. This week, Legend Born by Tracy Dion. This is a contemporary YA fantasy book. It was published in 2020, and this is one that I found in looking for a YA fantasy book by a Black author that we could cover, and it is a take on the Arthurian legend, and also Tracy Dion was inspired by Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising books, which we love very much, Um, so I was super intrigued by it. Madeline said, hey, sounds cool to me too. And here we are. Yeah. Um, We have been covering from time to time contemporary YA fantasy uh, written by people of color. And I'm so excited to get into this discussion because this book, it's so exciting to read something that was written just in the last few years Mm -hmm. um, and really incorporates modern concerns. And then also just has such a strong Black focus and perspective on yeah. being a Black American specifically. Mm-hmm. So I will say just as a general content warning, there is a lot of racism, um, macro and microaggressions, uh, sexual assault. Um, just a lot of a lot grief, of different types of violence. Death. Yeah, it's it's all in there. We're not going to be. Um, I think other than the racism piece, we're not going to be discussing any of the others really like significantly at length, mm-hmm. except for like racism and grief, probably. Yeah. Um, but just a heads up uh, for those of you who might not want to take that on right now. I will say that especially for white Americans who are lovers of fantasy. I really, really, really recommend this book. It's yeah, I I got surprised by it a few different times because I I kept trying to pin it like what it was going to be as a type of book. Yeah, it's very much its own entity. Yeah, and I've I was ultimately very impressed. Like I've I've read. I thought some, it was amazing. Yeah, I've read some kind of like pulpy. Uh, fairy magic like world uh, like stuff from people who were authors originally on um like fandom message boards and like that's how their uh stuff got Mm -hmm. noticed and like I like some of those books like definitely and I I felt a little bit of that like kind of pulp fantasy in here but it was done in such a good way that mm-hmm. I was just like, I kept trying to be like, oh, it's going to be like this or it's going to be like this, but it's it's much better. <laughs> yes, the writing is excellent. It is very classically YA fantasy in a mm-hmm. way that a lot of the books we cover don't feel because they don't have modern day settings. Yeah, um, yeah. We've, I feel like we've been talking about this a lot recently, but more so in our Babe Trion episodes, actually. Um, but when you go over to, when you make the shift from like medieval set fantasy to 
contemporary set fantasy, especially written for young people, it can be kind of jarring. Um, and I think it can be difficult if it's, if the author is not really talented for it not to feel sort of like, a like a teen CW show, but just with like specific fantasy trappings, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, that's definitely also kind of what I was saying. (laughs) I think having trouble like putting it into words because it feels so familiar. Yeah, no, absolutely. And reading it really took me back to um, finding great YA books when I was a YA um, (laughs) and how exciting it always was. Um, There are like very specific tenets of this book that I think are so classically like, and also Madeline loved manga. I mean, we both did, but there's like a lot of moments in this that made me think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Looks up, sparkles. (laughs) Yeah. Hot boy. Oh, here's the like broody hot boy. And here's the friendly hot boy. Which one will the protagonist choose? I'm always team broody hot boy. As you can probably predict, I think we're both going to be cell fans. (laughs) I truly was from the moment he showed up. Yep. I was like, gauges. (laughs) What? Booty damaged. <laughs> Tattoos. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then the other boy is like, an assigned tutor for new students. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay. Literal golden boy. <laughs> A little less appealing to me. So before we get into all of this, we will mention that we do thoroughly spoil every book that we cover. If you want to check it out before listening, or you can read it after listening. I think either would be a rewarding experience, but, um, it's really long, <laughs> but it's worth it. The, uh, the, the reader is, is quite good. Excellent. Read by Jonice Abbott Pratt. Okay. Yeah. She did a really good job with, um, differentiation of about 50 characters. Yeah. And also the more, we've talked about this before where there are passages that are more internal and intangible, Mm -hmm. um, to hear them like described and read aloud can be kind of confusing. It's a little Um, bit Madeline Langle. Yes, totally. Kiving memory walks are what they call the travel back through ancestors Mm -hmm. experiences in Legendborn. Um, Yeah, did an amazing job. I will say I, I made it through like half of the audiobook and then I was like, there's too much going on. I need to actually like see the words um, I, in order to like really uh, nail down all the different creatures and characters and concepts. Like I, you know, I've been training my audiobooks listener self, but I'm just not quite there yet. So both are available really broadly, the ebook and the audiobook. Um, yeah. So definitely recommend checking them out. I'm also very curious um, since so many of our listeners are not American, um, what reading this book is like for mm-hmm. you, because yeah. I think it is one of the most American books that we've read. Like it's just coming from such a specific perspective of reckoning with our nation's history of chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously every nation has their own like prolonged instances of human rights abuses um, and often slavery in itself. But the 
complicated and poorly handled way <laughs> with which America has dealt with this legacy. It's been poorly handled um, for uh, like 200 years. Yeah, yeah, capital P, capital H, poorly handled um, and continues to be so. Um, yeah, I'm just, I think this book explains that really well. Um mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was amazing. Haven't read another book like this. So there's this kind of Madeline's Law Corner, but only a little bit. Please. In uh, international human rights law, especially if you're talking about um, like having uh, moving forward as a society after a atrocity, like atrocity mm-hmm. meaning uh, like genocide, ethnic cleansing, um, yeah. like large, large scale acts of violence upon a people, like based on certain characteristics, uh, usually things like race and class, which are very closely tied together. Um, mm-hmm. and the idea that like has been done in some places like in South Africa and Kenya, um, and, uh, Definitely not after World War II, uh, but a, like, truth and justice, like, reconciliation, uh, mm-hmm. not a trial, but, like, a, a panel and a committee and, like, a discussion of, like, how do we, uh, like, highlight the the victims, um, like, their voices and what do we do if there's, like, violence from both sides or if, like, certain amount of people don't believe what actually happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've never had anything even remotely like that uh, around slavery in this country. And I, I, I can't even imagine how we would um, because we do have one of those problems that I've just highlighted that a lot of the population, um, their history is like, they don't know what actually happened. They've been told things like opposite to that. Yeah. And uh, I remember, like, in that seminar I took in law school, having an argument with a colleague, a white colleague, um, who was just saying, like, but why Why would we do it now? Like, it's over. It's over, and we can't go back and undo it. And the people who are alive didn't uh, have anything to do with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to hear what you're saying, but I'm struggling no, not no, to make I know. an audible and sound. And that... Oh my God. In this seminar, this human rights law seminar where we were discussing this, this is what the white man's opinion was. Um, And I think that that is a pretty good explanation of like why America (laughs) has such a massive racism problem. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just, I thought about that while reading this book. and uh, I really appreciate this book, uh, like as a white person, for making me think about these things in new and dynamic ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I think it's a super valuable book. I think there's both straightforward um, because it's based in like reality in modern times and then like analogs, like really, really good analogs historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, that's my uh, going into this recommendation. Like, you should go read this book. Yeah, and if you have any interest in Arthurian legend or Arthurian fantasy, mm-hmm. um, 
to have it explored through this lens is really incredible. Yeah. Um, to yeah. have a, I mean, big spoiler right now, so stop <laughs> if you don't want to know, but to have a protagonist who is a teenage black girl who is the ancestor of King Arthur mm-hmm. um, is so striking and is so because of rape of one of her ancestors who was enslaved mm-hmm. by one of Arthur's other ancestors yeah um through through an act of violence yes and then the the combined complexity of like inter intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. intertwined with that like magical lineage and power and like the concepts of like inherited violence mm-hmm. as well as the inherited trauma and how this is all at war within the protagonist Brie mm-hmm. um, in such a way that it's no surprise that she's uh, giving off like flames of power from yeah. her hands when no one else can do that and also is a medium and also is a root crafter. Yeah. <laughs> This book made me feel things. Made me feel things too. (laughs) Um, So let's get into it. First of all, we are going to describe how the publishers chose to package and promote this book. Um, This book is quite new. It came out in 2020. There is going to be a trilogy. Um, The second book came out just in November of 2022. Um, and it does have an amazing painting of Sal and Brie on the cover. So Madeline and I recommend you look at it. Um, but what? The, <laughs> the, legend, <laughs> the legend born cover is all Brie. And Madeline, would you like to describe it to us? Okay, I'll look it up later. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, and this is published by Simon & Schuster. So on the cover, we have uh, Brie... There is great, um, somewhat bisexual lighting. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to try to force it on everything now. It it would be if the colors were a little bit more neon. Yeah, yeah. But the theme theme and the scheme is correct. Yeah, so we have this really cool um, dichotomy between she has the blue um, root magic on one side and then the... Uh, ether or blood magic on the other because she is that powerful like she has both um, and she's looking very fiercely like straight into uh, the viewer and her hair is out and natural in um, curls and ringlets and uh, she's doing this really cool uh like magic sigil kind of thing. Yeah, with her a magic hands. hand position, yeah, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, it's just great. I think it's it's very very cool. You don't often get a picture of the protagonist on the cover of a book mm-hmm. who you're that firmly like, okay, yeah, that that's what they look like. Um, For sure. You know, we've reviewed a lot of covers where we see the main character, and we're just like. <laughs> What's going on with them? <laughs> yeah. No, I know. And then you feel like, like you don't know who they are or even recognize them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not ready to like spend a whole book thinking about this depiction of this character. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. She, I, I think 
I think the so this is illustrated by Hillary Wilson. Um, I think she did a really amazing job not aging her up too much, which is something that I was trying to keep in mind throughout the book because she is really young. Um, I was trying to find a specific age, but she's like 17, right? Yeah. Maybe even 16. 16 or 17 is Um, what I thought. It gets very confusing because she's an early college student where she's like a high schooler, but who's living on the college campus, taking early classes. Of course, we've like heard of many versions of these kinds of programs. I haven't heard of one quite like this before where you just like go to college and start taking classes, but you're still in high school, but you live on campus. Have you? I've never heard of one in real life. No, that sounds Um, like a really bad idea. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I just kept getting caught up in like, I don't know, I worked in res life. I was an RA and like, I just felt like there needed to be much better systems in place for these really young people who have just been put up in there with all the other college students and are just like living in a dorm. Um, yeah, no, think I of mean, the children, <laughs> come on. The things I want to say about this are not clean, but I just feel like it's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> a whole thing indeed. But she does look young um, on the cover, but also is appropriately like not sexualized. Like I think she looks like a strong teen. Um, I also love I that. I think she looks her- powerful. She does. She looks really powerful. Um, yeah. And she has on a cool, like, little, like, athletic, like, almost athleisure, like, black. Um, it looks very comfy. Dress. <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> Which is good for running around in. And her hair is just incredible. Like, yeah. the most gorgeous hair in the world. And I think for all of the, like, aggressions against her throughout the book when people are trying to touch her hair um, or comment on it in some way. Like I appreciate that it's depicted like her blackness is a big part of the cover. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think it's an incredible cover. No notes. And then the second one for the second book, Blood Marked, um, just literally looks like a manga cover where it's like her and Sal being like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I identified him as the correct love interest from the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Even though he is really mean and scary. (laughs) Yeah. That's something that we need to be cognizant of. Like, it's not always the best thing to, like, glorify the bad boys. And yet here we are doing it. Um, And also in fiction like this, it's because they then turn out to be, like, the best ones. Yeah. It turns out (laughs) they were just protecting you or, like, protecting someone they love. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's born of their own trauma, but then they have the capacity to be really lovely. Um, That's not how real human beings work. It's because this is fiction. So that's (laughs) just want to put that out there now. Disclaimer. Everything we say about Cell, like, please read it through that lens. (laughs) Thank you. Don't get mad at us, guys. (laughs) Okay. Shall I attempt to give a plot summary that won't take five hours? This book centers around, okay, 16-year-old. We have confirmation. Bree Matthews, who is a high school student who is sent to a, she applies to and gets into this early college program at 
University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is also her mother's alma mater. Complicating things is the fact that her mom died tragically and suddenly in a car accident shortly before she was about to begin this early college program. Um, Her mom actually dies shortly after she's accepted. Um, So then I think it's just a few months before the fall when she heads there with her best friend, Alice. The first night that they're there, they uh, get in trouble because they go to a, like, students jumping off of cliffs into water party. It's, which, it's a quarry, right? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> it didn't, you know, happen on my first night in college. I was forced to engage in some truly shameful mixer activities on the quad, um, but I made some of my first acquaintances by finding the other sullen young women who were like, I'm not doing that, <laughs> and banding together with them. <laughs> I immediately... Uh... <laughs> Might have to censor that, yeah. but if, if that has been censored, just know that Madeline, too, did not have the best first night no. at college. <laughs> So they're at this event, and and Brie meets a uh, the, the, the the aforementioned broody, um, cute, magical boy, and there is a monster. So she meets Cell, this boy, and they see a monster, and Cell and another girl fight off the monster, um, and then they mesmer or. Um, just like sort of block out the memories of the difficult event that they don't want people to remember for all of the like regular students that are just standing by. But Brie realizes that she, it didn't work on her. She can resist that mesmer somehow. Um, And then a cop comes and just takes her and Alice back to their dorm. Well, and the cop says some like, predictably racist, ignorant stuff in the yeah, car. The cop is <laughs> racist, classist, ignorant um, in a variety of ways. And Rhea's like, wow, college sure is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, the dean of students calls Brian and Alice to the office and says they have to have peer mentors. They have to be, uh, this is their only strike allowed. If they get in trouble again, they will be kicked out. And Brie meets her mentor shortly after that. And it is magical cute boy number two named Nick. She is immediately intrigued by Nick. Like she thinks he's a hottie, um, but he's also like clean cut in a way that she's a little confused by, but also clearly very smart. Um, And he kind of hints at how he's like, not done what his dad wanted him to do. And Bree's like, okay, well, you're still like a peer mentor. <laughs> like yeah. Like top of your early college class. You, you don't seem to be hurting. And they're hanging out. And then another monster appears. And Nick switches into battle mode and has a sword mm-hmm. and yeah. kills it. And Bree's like, okay, something more is afoot here. And she decides to investigate. 
Meanwhile, everyone else was like, oh, we don't have to worry about her. Like, we've mesmered her, but she actually remembers everything. And as she is being mesmered, she has a memory of the night that her mom died. And she has the same sort of feeling relating to the mesmer. She realizes that she thinks someone changed her memories the night that her mom died and that her mom's death or her mom or something related to her mom is connected to this magical order. So she just kind of shows up at the lodge, which is the place where the young people in this order live and hang out and have events and train. Um, It kind of bluffs her way into being given a lot of information. Um, It turns out that this is a group of descendants of the... Arthurian Knights of the Round Table, (laughs) and they are tasked with defeating monsters known as Shadowborn. And there have been more and more of them showing up. Bree is brought in as a decoy page or would-be page, and there's a group of these young people whose bloodlines are connected to the Arthurian knights, but then they still have to prove that they're worthy of being taken into the group. When you're taken in, you are given a squire, you're assigned to someone, Mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of not kind of, you literally become connected to like their brain and uh, emotions um, and become like, you will serve them for the rest of your life. And there are scions who are ones who are from like the major night lines and are the ones who have been awakened by their ancestral knights. They call call them with a capital C when it's time for them to fully gain the supernatural abilities that are within that night's line. And Nick decides that he's going to take Bree on as his page. And he also reveals, I'm the descendant of Arthur. So I have been resisting this. I like decided I didn't even want to be in the order. I haven't even been to the lodge in a long time. I pushed it all aside, but Bree and he become close and he tells her about his mom and that she thinks something happened and that she can resist Mesmer. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, I'm going to come back into the order for you and to help you. Um, It's a lot. Like it's kind of crazy that from the start, he is so drawn to her and to helping her and going against like his own personal trauma relating to the order Long story short, his mom's memory of him was erased so that she would let him be brutally trained in order to become the best future knight, even though he was like nine years old. And it turns out later, it's probably because they're, you know, Lancelot and Arthur's scions. (laughs) So there's some kind of unspoken connection there. and, And they were bros, so... Now they were bros. They are bros. Um, yeah, they are both bros and uh, would like to become lovers as well. They start falling in love and yep. kissing, and <laughs> Brie likes it. <laughs> yeah, she's having a great time. So that's the order, and those are the legend born of the title. At the same time, Brie is also assigned a therapist by the school and slash her dad. Um, he, he says, okay, she's already acting out. It's really unlike her to 
go out and get in trouble on the first night. And I really don't think she's dealt with the grief of losing her mother, which is true. Yeah. You figured it out, Bree's dad. Yeah. Um, she actually has an entire alter ego that she's developed called After Bree. Um, that she pushes to the forefront to hide any painful memories or emotions relating to her mom from essentially consuming her and um, totally incapacitating her. She meets with her therapist and her therapist is like, oh, I actually knew your mom. I went to school here with her. Um, And like, do you know a well, she didn't say, do you know about Rootcraft? She says, like, Were and we you did X like your we mom. did Rootcraft together. And Brie is like, what? And then the therapist has a big moral dilemma because she's like, do I reveal this piece of your mother to you that she didn't? But now she's dead. But also it's irresponsible for you to not know about your abilities. Um And ultimately, she does decide that she is going to tell her. And she sort of explains it to Brie by taking her on a memory walk, which is calling on the power of her ancestors for a time in order to show Brie some of their story. She shows Brie her ancestor, who was an enslaved woman on a plantation very close to the UNC Chapel Hill campus. And in that process, one of her ancestors who's in the memory sees Brie and grabs her and takes her deeper into a different memory. And Brie is like, what's happening? This is a lot. Um, So she's seeing her therapist Patricia's ancestors, but is also being interacted with and clearly she's she has some powers there even if she doesn't feel like she can access them it's the same with the order she's like i know i have something but i can't define it but also mm-hmm. there have been times when red mage flame has come yeah. out of my hands and i don't know what that's about and also these ancestors can see me and talk to me and i don't know what that's about but her true identity is unclear Partly because her mom died when she was young, her mother's mom died when she was young, and the same thing happened with her grandmother and her mother. So there's never been adult mother-daughter relationships in her family's history on her maternal side. And then beyond that, their ancestors were enslaved. So they don't get the luxury of having historical records and photographs and all the types of history that a lot of people of white ethnic backgrounds have access to. Mm-hmm. And throughout Bree's roommate and best friend from high school, Alice is like, I don't know what's happening to you. You're never around. Bree has begun engaging in the page training activities. So when she does show up, she's like beat up and dirty. Um, and sometimes the other members of the order will like mesmer Alice or like come up with a, they make up a story that Brie like blacked out at a party or something. It's like all very concerning. Yeah. Um, so Brie's, Brie is struggling throughout. Alice is struggling throughout. Brie's dad keeps being like, what's happening? Like, I just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all very stressful. And I had more than one moment where I was like, I had a hard enough time in college. <laughs> I wasn't even a part of one magical secret order, much less two. <laughs> 
At one point, she's like, I got a C minus on that English quiz. And I'm like, how did you even manage to take the Yeah, quiz? how did you get to the classroom? Like, I kept thinking about that whenever there was just a long activity with the order. Like, is she still <laughs> registered for classes? But they they usually didn't take more than like a, a day or It's an all evening. very fast paced. Yeah. Like, it happens really quickly. And I think part of that is because... The order keeps saying, we think that Camlan might be coming. And Camlan is when the new scions are all called by their ancestral knights because there is a significant danger that's about to take place. The gates between the shadow realm and the human world are opened. The world is like flooded with monsters and it's a full out war. And because of the rise in the appearance of monsters on campus and the different bizarre disturbances that have been happening, they think that it's imminent. So I think they're trying to like rush the pages through um, and kind of finish this initiation process so that they can just be ready Mm -hmm. for the fight. Yeah. So Brie is becoming closer to Cell. (laughs) Cell originally thought that Brie was a shadowborn secret demon who was trying to infiltrate the society um, and find out its secrets to take it down. She's just trying to find out what happened to her mom. Mm-hmm. And there is one night where Cell and Brie are paired up for a magical scavenger hunt where they have to find these different ether <laughs> items, the but there are also monsters <laughs> roaming around. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of different trials and they range from like more dangerous and life-threatening to like scavenger hunt yeah, but I maybe th- dangerous that was pretty funny <laughs> yeah that one did seem fun i'd be like can i just do that one <laughs> pretty good at scavenger <laughs> hunts and all night doing that so Cell and Brie are paired up for this and they end up having to fight some hell foxes um, that weren't created for the trial. And Cell thinks that Brie has created them. So he's like, call them off. And it becomes obvious to Cell that Brie can't fight them, has no idea what's going on, is not a uh, villain spy that has Demon. infiltrated their ranks. Um, after that, it's very funny that Cell says to her again and again, I can't believe I thought you were a shadowborn. <laughs> she like trips over a twig or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I was saying too. Like, dude, come on, open your eyes. Yeah. Like but- you are pretty perceptive if <laughs> you can figure it out. But, but like, she has baffling abilities right. that he doesn't understand. It, exactly. And she came out of nowhere. Like everyone else has these long established family lines and they've been like guided to this point their entire lives. Bree just showed up at a meeting and everyone was like, there is something about her, but what? And Nick Another key thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Nick doesn't explain anything to anyone for this whole book around Brie. Like he doesn't confide in anyone. Like he, he doesn't no. really work to make her life easier at all. He really doesn't. And on S- top Sal of that, Sal does. Um, on top of that, Brie is one of the very few members of the order that aren't white. Um, Mm -hmm. There is another black girl that she becomes friends with. There is an Asian non-binary page named Greer who is really sweet to Brie. Um, And then a few other folks that uh, are definitely, definitely take a liking to her and she forms good relationships with William, who is a healer because he's in the line of Gawain. Um, but it's, it's a combination of her appearing out of nowhere and then also her being black that makes a lot of them mistrust her. Um, and she finds out that 
the order actually didn't even allow black knights until well, very I, recently. And women oh, knights sorry, for a long time, too. Or, or female knights, yeah. yeah. Or scions, I should say. I mean, they're knights also, but I don't it's know. Fine. There's a it's lot fine. of terminology. It's very confusing. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so throughout, through that experience, and then also through talking to Patricia, her therapist, who takes her to a graveyard at UNC Chapel Hill that is a real graveyard, which is all unmarked graves of slaves, mm-hmm. um, a lot of whom built the university. And so she's dealing with a very complicated reckoning of like trying to understand her own history, North Carolina's history, her place in each of these magical traditions. Rootcraft is very much, it, it was created by black enslaved women. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a version of hoodoo, uh, which mm. is like a very decentralized and personal religious spiritual practice um, throughout North America, West Africa, that was created during periods of slavery in the United States. Um, Whereas the order is very much white and male and a few different times, Patricia refers to it as the colonizers religion and Mm -hmm. their magic is taken, not borrowed. Um, They, they call it blood crafting, but they have actually taken their ancestors power for perpetual you know, use during their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Whereas with rootcraft, you are very respectful of your ancestors. You ask if they will help you for a time, and it's always you're a conduit for them mm-hmm. rather than taking it for yourself. Um, so, Selen Bree, I'm sorry, just a little more background that I felt I needed to add. There's so much to explain here. Selen Bree, figure out that there was a Merlin, a mage present the night that her mom died. But it wasn't because they had anything to do with her death. It was actually just because there was a an event with some monsters getting loose on campus and killing students while she was a student there. Because and someone she opened a, a gate. Because someone opened one of the gates b- between the shadow realm and the human realm. And her mom was a witness. So she was mesmered. And then the order, um, because they are very diligent, kept tabs on her for her entire life. Um, so there was someone there just to kind of make sure everything was clean and that she had never shared any of this information with her husband or daughter. Um, so that's why Brie had that experience. But likely her mom wasn't actually a part of some larger battle that was raging on. And as they learn this, Sellas learns that his mom, he's half demon. Um, that's his, that's the way that Merlins work. That's how they have the power that they have. Yeah. But there's also this line of thinking that seems like actually isn't true, but is actually a way to like enslave the Merlins to mm-hmm. the order. Yeah. Um, that they can be overtaken by their demon blood and it's only through their oath of loyalty to the order that they're able to like maintain rational thought. So I bet Um, it's that link that is actually what's making them like, like flip out if that's even happening (laughs) or if they just like get to a point where they say something that their uh, master doesn't like and then they just like uh, institutionalize them. 
Right. Exactly. Because they have no, there's no out for them from this job and they're put into the position as children Mm -hmm. often. And Sel's, Sel's mom died in a fight, he was told, and then his dad became an alcoholic. And so he was taken in by Nick's family, but he wasn't really taken in by them. He was brought in to like be their servant and to take care of Nick. Yeah. Um, so that's not good either. Yeah. And Sal learns while they're um, stealing the big boss's paperwork <laughs> to try to find <laughs> out about what happened to Bree's mom, that his mom is actually alive and she didn't actually lose her mind. Um, Bree tells him during something she realizes during like an ultimate memory walk that happens a little later. I'm messing up the timeline, but his mom was actually there when her mom died too. Um, And they were friends. So Sel and Brie have this like really cool connection that I I really, really loved. Um, Madeline is (laughs) grinning a lecherous little smile (laughs) on the other side of the Zoom. (laughs) Brie calls her ancestors forth so that they can help her figure out like what happened in my line? Clearly, I have rootcraft and bloodcraft. When did this occur? And her grandmother comes and possesses her body for uh, not only the remainder of the book. It kind of seems like beyond that. Yeah, that she's just a passenger in her head now. She's just with her. Yeah, and occasionally slapping her if she say takes the Lord's name in vain, which is very funny. It's an amazing line where Bree is saying to Mariah, another um, uh, medium uh, who is practicing rootcraft, like, "You ever get your ass called out from beyond the grave?" And Mariah's like, "All the time. It's so annoying." And her grandmother is inside her body, being like, "Okay, I'm I'm trying to find our ancestor who can show you how this all began, so mm-hmm. we can figure it out." But it's taking a while. So like you keep doing your thing. And meanwhile, all hell is breaking loose. Literally, there's a big gala where everyone puts on. I mean, Brie wears an amazing dress yeah. that I would love to see in person. Um, too feminine for me, but Madeline, I think you could rock it. It sounds incredible, like Outward. a phoenix dress. <laughs> it sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She shows up at the gala after like shoving the order away and being like, oh, I can't do this to say, you know, Nick, I love you, man. This is complicated. What's going to happen? Nick asks her to be his page in front of everyone. So Squire, I'm sorry, in front of everyone. She's already his page. And everyone's like, ah, and they all freak out. And a bunch of racist assholes are like. She's black, um, basically. I mean, said in much worse ways. And in all of the craziness, Nick and his dad slip away, and then monsters show up. Always just suddenly wandering off. That's why I'm like, Zell is the one who is like there and like shows up to like work with her and protect her. (laughs) Nick's just like, it was really in moments like that when I started to be like. I don't actually think Nick is Arthur's descendant um, uh, because okay. I just feel like he's not telegraphed that way. He has like the charm and people are very willing to rally around him. So the Lancelot like, thing makes sense. Right. Yeah. That's that's why I, I was like, 
I was I wasn't necessarily saying like I definitely think Brie is Arthur at this point, um, but it did seem like some of the communication was off, especially the fact that he could resist the call the mm-hmm. way that he has. So there are monsters showing up. Meanwhile, Brie is kidnapped by Nick's dad's creepy Merlin, who's like yeah. a vampire man <laughs> demon. <laughs> Isaac is a vampire. It's like, wait, what? There's just one vampire. He's not literally a vampire, but he has really long fangs um, and is like sallow and colorless um, and loves to like, yeah, kidnap women. So there's definitely a lot of identifying OG vampire. And that's when he and Nick's dad are like, you can't be Nick Squire. This is all wrong. And then Nick's dad totally just soliloquizes and admits that what Bree suspects is correct. He's the one who opened the gate 25 years ago. And it's because at the time he was trying to force Arthur to call him. Um, He wanted to take on as much power as possible. But then the call has now been passed on to Nick. So he's still trying to force Camlin to happen so that Nick becomes Arthur. And, and he, and he I, tells her that, like, she doesn't deserve it. You, you don't deserve this. And it made me think about uh, current Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh um, during his, like, hearing <sighs> for the terrible stuff he did that no one ended up caring about that I deserve this. Yeah. So I felt Agreed. like that was a good, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's I, that's very natural of this this man to say. <laughs> There's a real, yeah, really strong parallel. And the, the white conservative good old boys attitude is mm-hmm. on a strong display, glaring yeah. display throughout the order. Yeah. Um, and and the women involved in it too, like the mothers of some of the the young male pages who um, see Brie as wrong mm-hmm. um, and see her as not belonging there. Yeah, or when she gets mistaken for a servant. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah one of them is trying to like give her her glass or something. Yeah, yeah, so deeply upsetting. Um, yeah, and they're basically like we're we're not going to allow this to happen. And also I'm the big bad. Ha ha. Um, Brie and Alice, who they bring in to threaten again, threaten Brie with, um, they manage, they manage to leave simply because Brie tells them that she will let them go ahead with their dastardly plan and she'll like leave town. Um, yeah. And I was, I was honestly kind of surprised that they just let her go, but maybe they didn't want a scandal, even though these people are so rich and powerful that it doesn't seem like that would bother them. I I think again, they're underestimating her and they're also thinking that they have the privilege of being able to say, well, it's obviously our word against hers. So Nick's dad is also powerful in the university as well as in the orders. So like, he has influence and sway in both worlds. And I think they really feel like like this this teenage girl, like we'll just send her away. Yeah, like just what go, can go she away. possibly go, go on yeah. with your life? <laughs> and that that night is when Nick's dad is trying to open the gates and have Nick be called and take up Excalibur, Arthur's swords. So like I think they very much see her as like a little annoyance who can't possibly actually harm them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Turns out she can harm them, and she does. <laughs> but first, they have to like crawl through the tunnels, trying to get to where Nick's dad has hidden him away, where he's trying to open the gates. There's demons down there, and turns out there's also a demon who's been impersonating one of the scions for months, like for a while. Um, it's a it's a bit of a um, polyjuice potion situation, if yeah, you will. Yeah, um, Matt I Moody. Uh, yeah, he killed Evan the scion and. Um, this this demon Roz, I actually kind of liked Roz. I liked Roz too. Because it was really was like, funny when he was like, I had to learn the ukulele. Do you know how hard that is? Because it's because like a a demon big bad is I don't know, it's just a lot more fun than it's fun. Uh, like colonialism, paternalism, totally. racism, imperialism, well, dad. We've, we've been dealing with all these baddies that are baddies from our world. And then to have a demon show up that's like, I just want chaos, baby. I'm going to end the lines here tonight yeah. by killing Arthur's heir. And also says things to Brie like, that was rude. Which yeah. like tries to kick him and get away from him. No, he's, he's so much and he's more like a good like, old school, like big, bloody, fanged, winged, red demon. Like yeah. that's just, it's just enjoyable. And his name is just, Roz. <laughs> um, so like, as you can imagine, all of the, uh, the order, the Legendborn are in this cave trying to fight against the demons that Nick's dad has called, but now they've, you know, obviously all turned on him and he doesn't really have the firepower to take care of it. And because Arthur isn't uh, actually awake. Arthur is not Nick. calling Nick. Yeah, yeah. Nick is there and he's fighting, but he doesn't, he can't take Excalibur out of the stone. Yeah. All the while, Bree's grandma has been cooking away inside of her. (laughs) (laughs) Grandma's about to come through. (laughs) And Bree, in a crucial moment in the fight, suddenly feels a much earlier ancestor of hers break through. And she shows Bree, she takes her back in the memory. And we get, uh, I loved the way that this memory walk is written. It's written like a poem. If you were just listening to the audiobook, you wouldn't have been able to see it but i'm sure it's it was delivered differently and in because it's written in like five word lines for the entire time she's in the memory it's written like a poem oh, rather okay. than prose she did read it like dreamy that makes sense and her ancestor shows her her living as a slave on a plantation the uh, owner of the plant sta- plantation and his wife arguing about having a child and then her being raped by him and him telling her in vague terms that he would kill her because she was pregnant with his child. And then she ran away and in the process called on the blood of her ancestors. Because they, they, said, they called dogs on her and she was not yeah, going to make she's it. Being, no, she's not going to escape. And in the woods, she goes into her root craft, but then also enters bloodcraft mm-hmm. and it is i mean this isn't mentioned but i assume it's because she is pregnant with a child who is of the bloodcraft tradition yeah that she's able to do this um and also she has great need um 
And her ancestors say, okay, we'll do it, but there is a price. There will only ever be one who is awakened at a time. So this is why all of the women in Bree's family die young, because as their daughter's power is being awakened, something happens to them. It's not, you know, they don't like get sick or like suddenly have their heart stops or anything. Like Bree's mom died in a car accident. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's just random twists of fate. But So in a way, the order is responsible for the death of Bree's mother and for the, yeah. the disconnect between the women of each generation, which is definitely a form of violence, like it's when so, you're breaking that chain. It's so painful. Mm-hmm. And like and every all the knowledge that's lost. They're losing so much, mm-hmm. so much um, from generation to generation. And as this happens at the very end, Bree's ancestor is like, okay, so just one more thing. He's waiting. He wants to call you. Should I let him? <laughs> Should and I Bree's let like, Arthur okay. Pendragon call you? <laughs> and then she reaches out and grabs Excalibur and pulls it from the stone. And she is awakened. She has Arthur inside of her. Yeah, she starts speaking, like Arthur starts speaking through her. And she has Arthur's he voice. So no one questions her. her. Yeah. <laughs> like a baritone voice coming out of a 16-year-old girl. Um, and Arthur, and not Bree, she's fighting against him, but Arthur commands everyone to bow to him. And they do. And then she collapses because, wow, what a time. <laughs> and we... <laughs> At that point, have, what have essentially reached the end of the book. The, it, we end on a cliffhanger. Nick is kidnapped by someone, by his dad, I assume. Um, we've realized that he is actually the scion to Lancelot, and he has also been called. Um, so now the order is like going to be in absolute disarray because the scion of Lancelot or who they thought he was has just been like stuck at a different, you know, facility or whatever. They've been waiting for him to be called. Yeah. Um, it turns out that their ancestral lines are completely different than what they thought. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some like attempted denial of it all. Um, and now Arthur is a, uh, um, young black girl. So, <laughs> It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And she finds out at the end that Nick is, as usual, gone, except this time he's been kidnapped. <laughs> and she and Sal, like, almost kiss, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, no, it's because, like, there's very clearly tension between them. Like, they dance at the ball, and it's, like, very. They have, sexy like, a hot, jealousy inducing <laughs> yes. dance. She literally feels sparks whenever she touches him, which yeah. is because of their like similar makeup um, and like the fact that they're both very complex, magical beings mm-hmm. and their moms were friends. Um, yeah, so yeah. like, I feel like we just haven't and learned because yet. Because they're, they're both outsiders also is they a very are. important part of like their connection. Yeah, no, they absolutely are. Um, and while Cell is like very integral to the order, he's not treated like one of the other members. And I found it really sad that ever like even though he is a pain, it's sad that everyone else is like, oh yeah, Cell's like off having a temper tantrum. And it's like, 
don't you think you guys could like be more empathetic toward his life and his pain? <laughs> he was orphaned and then raised like in his job that he was oathed to take. And if he breaks that oath, he'll be imprisoned for the rest of his life. And they tell him that at some point he'll lose his mind and like go off like a bomb and they'll have to like deal with him. Put him in a horrible like Azkaban prison. Yeah, yeah where they um, run tests on you. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> not fun. Yeah. Um, and and book two came out last November, um, Bloodmarked. And I, I imagine their adventures continue like pretty much straight away because um, there's a lot of mortal peril in place. Yeah. We kind of already shared our impressions of the book before we even got to the summary. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love to share this quote from Tracy Dion um, about deciding to write this series. So first of all, I do want to say that a lot of the series is um, very true to life for her. Mm-hmm. Um, she is from North Carolina. She went to UNC Chapel Hill and her mother also died when she was young. Mm-hmm. And she was really into sci-fi and fantasy. Her mom um, introduced her to Star Wars and Star Trek. And that was something that they really shared. And she talked about how growing up in North Carolina, there would be coursework as elementary and middle school Um, coursework in elementary and middle school where you're supposed to say where your family came from. And there'd always be this assumption that there was a European origin. So Mm. students would come to class and be like, my family, way back when they came from France or they came from Scotland. And then for the black American students, there was just this horrifying sort of traumatic school assignment that white instructors never really thought about how painful it was. Yeah. And in terms of so there was that piece and then in terms of wanting to write this fantasy so she did say that she loved the dark is rising loved susan cooper and always wanted to do her own take on the arthurian legend we also love susan cooper <laughs> and we have episodes on oversee under stone and on the dark is rising And she said, I really wanted to write something I've never seen. The thing that's very unique about Legendborn is that for the YA genre, it's really pressing hard on history, mental health, and external forms of oppression. Mm. At the same strength level, you have demons, magic swords, fantastical secret societies, training sequences, and tournaments. Hot boys. Um, And and hot boys. (laughs) She didn't say that. That's not part of the quote. (laughs) And she had been asked, how does it feel to be one of the pioneering voices in the diversification of the fantasy genre? And she said, pioneer feels daunting, but I also know there's been a lot of us who are out here. And if I'm a pioneer, then so are a lot of other black fantasy writers. I'm in good Mm -hmm. company. And I think what's so special about this work is how focused it is and how we are viewing this God, the Arthurian legend is like one of the most popular fantasy concepts. There are, and it's just when you think about the number of works, the mm-hmm. sheer number of works that focus on some component of and Arthurian it, legend. And it's much older even than its uh, date of, mm-hmm. you know, collection because mm-hmm. it's actually. Uh, it's based on a lot of like Celtic, Gallic, Welsh. Um, and I liked that they use Welsh in the book um, yes. for mm-hmm. the names, uh, a lot of the different uh, yeah. names of monsters and places and things and, like that. And these were like the um, 
like the mythology of the like indigenous people who were, uh, I mean, they were mostly colonized by, it was the The Celts. I'm saying they were the Celts and then they were colonized. Yeah. 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 And then they were, they were colonized by uh, ultimately Christians Mm-hmm. And so this is a collection of those really cool, old, magical, powerful stories. And then you have a imperialist uh, skin slapped mm-hmm. on it. And yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Like, that's another reason why I thought the, the, um, the commentary on that was because mm-hmm. you have like the earth magic versus right. the like or more feminine uh coded earth magic mm-hmm. like older pagan magic and then you I have I think it. it's explicitly um the maternal line as well like I mm, I don't think there okay. are male rootcraft um practitioners. practitioners okay yeah um which also makes sense yeah and then you have the very like the white christian man uh story that's imposing all of these like rules mm-hmm. and order on you um, and it's all about taking power yeah. rather than mm-hmm. accessing and borrowing and sharing with those who have come before you. Yeah. So I thought that like that was masterful, that kind of, and that was not even explicitly acknowledged. Like that's just running in the background. No, right. There's There's a lot of subtle meaning throughout the book. Um, That's where I think that conceptually Tracy Dion just did such, such, such a good job. And I don't think it would have been anywhere near as strong if it was um, Arthurian legend, but all of the, you know, knights and characters are black as opposed to Arthurian legend butting up against a, you know, black American magical tradition pointing out the inherent violence and oppression that is a part of the Arthurian piece um, and how that conflicts with what the women and the black women in the American South were practicing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it just makes for a much more interesting story and also makes so much sense. It reads like a, it reads like a real history of our country because it is um there's just been magic added in but like there's specific moments in the book like the fact that there is a statue of this specific confederate soldier Mm -hmm. um who was horrifyingly violent to a young black slave um his they she Tracy Dion used a real name. Um, I can't remember his name. It's like uh, Joseph Carr, I think. Um, and there was a statue at UNC Chapel Hill that was called Silent Sam that um, was of a Confederate soldier and is like kind of what she was playing off of when talking about the fact that that statue was on the campus um, that didn't come down until 2018 when it was taken down as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. Um, so that's it's not fantasy. (laughs) It's that, that is a real part of our history. And I mean, I guess we should have said from the start, we, we're not Southern and we, um, like our families really aren't, um, we've like both of our 
lines, our moms and dads lines, like immigrated to the U.S. from French Canada and Germany, um, mm-hmm. yeah, like a few generations ago. A few um, to a lot, because I think the. <laughs> This one said, right. I if you start breaking down, like is both the, maternal and paternal lines, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. The French fur trappers they came over in like the late 16, early 1700s just to be mm-hmm. alone in the woods with their belts. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, those those who know us won't be surprised, but then in terms of like in more recent years where we've lived, like our families have been in Michigan and Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's, that's it. So and now yeah, Washington. I, uh, now, now we've, we've really <laughs> it's a lot of west. us out here. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us have headed west at this point. Um, but I do, so I do think like, I don't have the immediate contextual experience of having grown up in the South. Mm-hmm. The time that we have spent in the South, because we have spent time there over the years. Um, yeah, I went to Gatlinburg for a week. Is I, I, I immediately understand the excruciating reminders that like just reflect on our entire flawed approach as a nation to reckoning with her legacy of slavery mm-hmm. um, that are everywhere. And I looked up the statue that Patricia and Brie meet out for their first therapy session of enslaved people holding up oh, a huge yeah. table, mm-hmm. which is also real. Um, and also on the UNC Chapel campus, Tracy Dion just like moved it to a different area <laughs> for the story to put it in a garden instead of like more central. Um, That's wild I will that say, it's real. I kind of agree with the, what Patricia says about it. I do too. And there are a lot of statues that are visualized that way. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's like, on the one hand, we absolutely have to acknowledge the pain and violence that our nation inflicted on these people and their bodies. Yeah, but you can get that from like books. Well, I don't think... Not statues, maybe? I don't think like perpetual suffering and visuals of it are effective. Yeah. and I think in some ways it's actually still kind of dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like people talk about this in a lot of movies depict how with a lot of movies depicting slavery, they just essentially become trauma porn. Yeah. Um, and I think there's such a, I'm, I'm white. Like I am not a person who can speak about this and say that it's good or bad or anything like that. But I do think that there is like a really heavy hand with which typically white creators to take when they're depicting something like slavery in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, where it's like, oh, well, we really have to feel the suffering. And I know a lot of black, um, writers and, uh, experts on American history have said like, We've suffered enough. I really, yeah. I really don't need um, more of these depictions put out there that are also often like set up as weird Oscar baity yeah. projects yeah. for white actors that are involved in them. Um, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about 12 Years a Slave right now, I guess. Uh, but there's so many other very similar projects. Um, so anyway, to have a discussion of slavery and the Black experience in the American South created by a Black author who is from the American South, mm-hmm. and then to have it take on Arthurian legend and all the problems with it. Um, And like that underlying desire for Camlin that so many of them exhibit, like most notably Nick's dad, but like the war, the war lust and the war cry. Yeah, exactly. That's just deafening. Like the, the imperialism of it all. He wants war. It's, it's good for business. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, he, he says at one point, like, War will be good for us yep. in a variety. I can't remember the exact quote, but um, it's just all so tied together. Mm-hmm. And the the real shifting, <laughs> I don't even want to say moral lines, but like trying to um, identify and understand the motivations for the various characters in the book, like the big players, mm-hmm. is really fascinating. And I think like one thing about Nick and why we're kind of like, Maybe this can be a little uh, segue into romantic realism because I really want to like actually discuss that topic for this book. Yes. Um, But I think Nick is like a little bit of a cipher in some ways. Like what we know of him is like he's had pain too. Like Cell and like Brie, he lost his mom when he was young. but it was through her memory of him being erased because she tried to take him away to stop the brutal training that his dad was insisting that he undergo. And also like that the order insisted that he undergo, which is all made so silly when you reflect on the fact that he's not even Arthur's scion and his dad wasn't either. And it also makes me wonder, like, so that entire time since that slaveholder... Yeah, I don't understand. An awakened scion of Arthur, but I guess I guess they did say two hundred years. Yeah, two hundred years. So, fascinating. Um, and the Lancelot line must have been really confusing. I know. Yeah, like what was going on over there? And their strengths are different too. Bree is learning on the fly. I felt so, just from the perspective of like you know, I want to be like on top of my stuff and be prepared for situations. And that's like a really good way for me to mitigate my anxiety. The way that like she just has to bluff her way through everything relating to the order is so stressful. Yeah, no, definitely. (laughs) I didn't like that. Um, But anyway, yeah, Nick's like, Nick's like a cute guy, a nice guy. He initially rejected his birthright, which isn't really his birthright. Um, It was wrong. (laughs) But then got back into it to help Brie, which is genuinely lovely. Um, And he clearly really cares about her. I will admit, I had moments when I thought Nick was one of the villains. Um, Me too. But then I was like, right. But then I was like, I don't think Tracy Dion would have had them get like as physical as they got and also like describe the hookups in such, um, you know, YA romance novel detail. If um, he were the, the If villain. he were actually a villain. It didn't seem like it was that kind of book. Like it's a book that deals in dark 
themes, but it's not like tricking the readers, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and like, I, I think I liked Brie that. is treated, Brie is treated with a lot of love by the narrator. Like, I think you can tell that, you know, Tracy Dion like shares a lot of the experiences Brie is having. And like, I don't think she would be uh, hurt in that way. Yeah. I, I was kind of worried about it at, at a few different points in the book, but mm-hmm. I agree that that does seem to be the author's feeling about her. Yeah. I just, I had a really deep down, like, I don't think you should do this when Nick gives her his room key and is like, we could meet in my room after I go get my dad from the airport. I was like, (laughs) yeah, I I do remember that as someone who went to college in the middle of nowhere, those really long drives to the tri cities to go to the Pasco (laughs) airport. Oh, yeah, and you had to go they past were, the paper mill. Oh, my God, the smelliest place it so in, in our nation. Yes, it I wonder so what bad. that is. Is that just cancer smell, probably? <laughs> no, it's just, it's really sulfuric. It has to do with the way that the, like, paper, the recycled particles are, like, broken down. Um, but, it? yeah, any, any of you, if you've ever been past a paper mill or factory of some kind... Take a sniff. It's horrifying. <laughs> and if you live in, if you live near it, you just have to get used to it because it, it's everywhere. Um, much like in Danville, the smells of cow feces and corn cobs are frequently on the wind. What a time! Sometimes, sometimes where we live, we're close enough to the the Franz factory that it smells like bread. That's a very fun part <laughs> of the CD. Yeah. <laughs> Just golden loaves on the breeze. Nothing wrong with that. Smells good. Yeah. So I really wondered about Nick and I, I still am like so curious how he's going to take all of this. He is unfailingly loyal to Brie, but we, we haven't gotten his reaction yet to his dad um, or to Brie becoming Arthur or to any of it. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think it's kind of fitting that he was like shuttled aside in order for Cell and Bree to have the last scene together because it's yeah. pretty obvious to me that their end came. No? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, it, it's, it's such a funny like dichotomy that is in so much media, like romance, <laughs> drama, fantasy, where you have the like two love interests, one is the like tall, dark, and handsome. The other one is the golden boy. <laughs> Would then, you call it the the fruits basket effect? Fruits basket effect. <laughs> but in fruits basket, there's like ten guys. <laughs> yeah, there's so many pretty boys, and they're like at one point or another all depicted as like maybe a viable love interest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. I, I think it's done pretty well in this, though. Like, I've definitely mm-hmm. read it in other things where it's just not believable. Um, but the way that... And again, as I said, Nick is really shooting himself in the foot with Bree because he keeps not being there. And mm-hmm. Cell is. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just a very simple, like, part of... That's, like, like the most basic equation for how you, <laughs> you get gotta the guy there. or the gal. <laughs> gotta be there with the human that you were intending to romance. <laughs> um, I also, like, another piece that I kept getting stuck on, but was also, like, 
I totally understand why this was the case, but all of the romances between scions and their squires, um, and the fact that there were these bonded pairs that were also sleeping together, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, romantically involved in some way, like, I totally understand why that would happen. And also everyone is really young. They're like horny. (laughs) They're spending a ton of time with these people. They're like engaged in a dramatic battle against good and evil. They have, (laughs) they have all this steam to blow They live in a house together. (laughs) They have special powers. They're like, like, (laughs) right. They have incredible like heightened abilities, which are hinted at at one point when two of them are like talking about hooking up, which is really funny. (laughs) Um, you know, some some vampire sex sort of situations. And I love that for its realism also, because yes. if you just have like a pile of young, incredibly attractive people who spend all their time together, like there's going to be romantic stuff going on. And then Cell's, like one of Cell's ancestors was a succubus. Mm-hmm. Um, so he also has built in hotness um that's like yeah genetic (laughs) yeah and makes him like extra beautiful and irresistible um which i was a detail (laughs) that was just incredible and like we haven't we haven't read like more recent ya in a while um and like it was really fun for me just to remember what that's like, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the way that the like romances are described and Brie is like just very activated all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like anytime anyone touches you, it's just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or like the lines like wherever their skin touched, a trail of sparks was left behind. It was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, steamy and sparkly. Also, I loved that there were a lot of queer relationships Mm -hmm. and they felt totally natural. It at no point felt like, oh, like obligatory queer partners. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also loved that there was a non-binary character. And in spite of the fact that like, some of the old guard folks do reject that character, Greer, and kind of like mumble about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the young people, like the people currently in, in the order, everyone is super accepting of Greer um, and happy to have them there. Mm-hmm. And I also loved that Tor and Sarah, who were Scion and Squire, were in love with each other. Um, oh, God. But Tor dies, doesn't she? No, she no, makes it. I'm thinking Tor. of like. Tora gets really injured but gets healed Sarah by William. Sarah makes it, but a couple, someone else's. In that final battle, a bunch of characters who have like played large yeah, parts all in the dusted. book die. Witty, who I really liked, yeah, because um, he's he like seems like a country boy, but then is like super um, accepting and open minded and like fiercely loves his friends and stuff um i feel like that's such a ya character trope like fiercely loves their friends like um (laughs) like mole from wind in the (laughs) will our last patreon episode was on the adventures of ichabod and mr toad so that's why we're we've got mole fresh on the mind but yeah i in in terms of romantic realism if i were brie i would definitely like be acting along these lines like she she didn't do anything that I was like ah and it it's since um 
Selwyn and Nick are not uh, like ancient. They're not Mm -hmm. like super old magical beings. It removes that uncomfortable element from the dynamic that is like often in here. Like, oh, like super hot vampire man looks your age, but he's actually 150. (laughs) Right. I was, yes, a a bit of a Buffy and Angel situation. Um, Yeah, I was worried about that definitely throughout the book. Um, I, I still don't love that a 16 year old is being this is like the one thing about Nick where I'm a little bit like where he is 18 older than 18 not sure exactly and is dating a 16 year old which isn't it's not great could be worse (laughs) I mean yes but And like, they're both in, isn't he in his final year of the early college program? Like he's not even technically a college student yet. Right. I thought it was like, I had no idea. I assumed he was so confusing older than her at most. (laughs) I was so confused by it. And as I said, very stuck in my RA brain of like, these kids need someone to help them through this time. Worried about everyone. Oh my gosh, because uh, that's really young. I already said this, but it's just very young to be flung into this situation. Well, that's, that's even if you're RA, you. someone who's like on the edge of a mental breakdown at all times, like I was, maybe <laughs> they can still help you. College. <laughs> um, yeah. And when I think about that concept now, it's also very funny. It's like the fact that I lived in a freshman dorm and I was only, you know, two years older than them, but I'm supposed to be able to like dispense wisdom and care for them and take their drugs away and turn off the burner when they tried to make a pan free <laughs> quesadilla at 2am. <laughs> was the, uh, was the quesadilla still on the border or they just left it on and left? It was the food was still there, and and w- it created a fire. Um, we we had a lot of. Uh, there was one it girl. Created a fire. Yeah, there was one girl who liked to do things with the stove when she got wasted, and we mm. had a lot of situations with them. We literally had fire watch for a while, so that was fun. Wow. Um, yeah, the the fire alarm system went down, so we had to in fifteen minute increments all of the RAs wake up throughout the night and you roam around rounds. the dorm to make sure that a fire that had broken fires. <laughs> anyway <laughs> I want support for them the last thing last thing I'll say that's my OTP I look forward to them uh, kiss him for the first time because it's going to be great for everybody the one thing about Selick I'm getting stuck on is like when did he get all these tattoos <laughs> He's like fully tatted and he's like 18. I, I there's love also never that trope in these it's stories. It's very funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's very funny, especially because tattoos are immediately meant to convey like they're cool, they're traveled, they're wise, like they've it, seen the world. And a lot of time, every time I've seen tattoos like that in a book mm-hmm. like this, it's they have a lot of trauma. 
So it's also yeah. about them being like hardened. Right. It's, and it's like written on their skin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that his are all like intertwining from his arms through to his chest and that he has a Celtic knot there. Mm-hmm. I think it also kind of symbolizes that he is like trapped in the order. Um, yeah. And also tattoos are just hot. So, you know, he's supposed to be hot. <laughs> Says a tatted lady, but I agree as a non-tatted lady. It's true. And the fact that Cell, this is why I don't think he's actually like toxic and like wouldn't actually be unhealthy to be in a relationship with is because once he does believe that Brie is not a demon, he actually does open up to her and he does so fairly quickly. Yeah, he changes completely. Like it's clear that it was like a big change for him and then it was totally like oh okay so the way I'd been feeling and acting like I mm-hmm. that's not the reality I thought it was so and there's nothing hotter than saying <laughs> there's no one who needs more therapy than I do <laughs> honestly right? yeah right? honestly yeah especially from a man <laughs> no yeah I loved when he said that to Brie and the fact that they both like process together their mom's you know disappearance slash death and the fact that their moms were friends and like they've lost their moms but now they have each other it's so sweet i just it's great i stand i really love it yeah sorry nick but we're not uh we're not into you (laughs) no matter how many times brie describes you're like hot shoulders and blonde (laughs) hair (laughs) just don't care Yep. Yeah, there's that's where we fall in romantic realism. Brie handles herself very well. I'm very impressed by the way she's able to like especially going from what seems like a pretty sheltered teen experience where like she and Alice, you know, they say a few times like they were the bookish ones. They weren't like going to parties. They weren't like dating. Mm-hmm. They were mostly like hanging out with each other. Um very similar to me and my close friends in high school and she is actually like pretty good at being confident around all these dudes. And I really respect that about her. Like the fact that Brie makes it through any of the events of the book without just um, needing to go to bed for a month is very impressive. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure how I ended up married. Uh, I'm like used to have the worst, just like, chest pain and stomach pain when talking to someone that I was like, oh, you're hot. It's hard. It's shutting down all of my bodily function. And Cell can tell when Bree's heart is like beating quickly and when yeah. she's reacting to him because of all his heightened super senses. But he also like piggybacks her across town at one point, which is yeah. very funny. Yeah, I know. I thought of Twilight because oh it was the only other thing that I could think of. Right. <laughs> A sexy piggyback. Oh my God, that's so funny. I forgot about that. Uh, Yeah, we, so I think we can like have, I think we'll talk about pretend food and they like kind of wrap things up. There is just one other piece I did want to mention, which is I think the way grief is talked about in this book is really beautiful. It's like naturally very painful and you do get frustrated with Brie at times that she's so 
she's so aware of how she's suppressing her emotions Mm -hmm. and delaying processing of the loss of her mother. And also I think in some ways it's like diving into these very distracting magical things that are going on so that she can better ignore it. Yeah. Um, And like be so occupied every day that she just falls into bed and passes out um, at the end of the day. And then she develops her entire alter persona and her internal wall that she builds up to keep her mom's memory out. But then that wall ends up being like part of what she's using to like hold off Arthur's call and like delay her root craft. Um, And I think it's really important to think about it from that perspective of like when you are building a wall for one reason, what else is getting trapped behind it? It's a good lesson. Enough of the tough stuff. <laughs> TM. TM. Pretend food. Pretend food. Early on when Brie is really not feeling good and she's having a tough time and Alice is like, do you still want to be my friend? They have a fight because Brie is like mysteriously entering the order and stuff and she can't tell Alice about it because she swore an oath of secrecy. Yeah, she swore an oath and as far as she knows, it could really mess her up if she violates it. Right. And later she realizes that she can break it because she's Mm -hmm. not actually of the order in the way that they thought, but she also is. So I don't know. Uh, Anyway, she's she's Arthur, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Arthur can do whatever. (laughs) Um, But Alice gets her Bojangles, which we, I mean, I haven't had because I haven't spent that much time in the South. Um, I've seen it at like the Atlanta airport and it does look really good. And Alice gets her, it's called a bowberry biscuit, um, which is like a blueberry buttermilk biscuit with like frosting on it. <laughs> looks pretty tasty. What's what's it called? <laughs> now I'm looking at Bojangles. Bowberry. Bowberry. And when Brie is holding the paper bag, she says, buttermilk biscuit. Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also my response to a biscuit. (laughs) Or like any uh, sweet snack that I have in front of me. Especially if it's like you just woke up, it's morning, something bad went down the night before. It's just a relief. Just want a biscuit. A, something that I wanted to touch on with regards to the order, um, but fits right into pretend food is that a lot of their like careless wealth and just like the ability to purchase whatever they want because they are collectively like the most wealthy and powerful families. Yeah, they are the man is really depicted through all of their like feasts and events where there's just piles of food everywhere the way that these are described especially I was trying to put myself back in like college me brain to go to an event and be given anything other than like a very old piece of pizza from the worst pizza place in Walla Walla Washington (laughs) I I, I would have I would have never left I'd be like okay well I'm gonna eat all the food tonight and I'm not gonna (laughs) talk to anyone I will not be listening to the speaker or whatever I'm just gonna be here the food table. Mm. And she mentions going to 
the lodge for a dinner and the dinner display is massive. Shrimp cocktails on the rim of mini wine goblets filled with cocktail sauce, vegetable crudités on two-tiered silver serving dishes, seasonal flowers in red and white nestling between baskets of warm rolls, crostinis, and olive oil-soaked baguettes. Layers <laughs> of grilled pineapple sticks sit by chocolate-covered melon on a white serving platter. Oh. Wow, that's just like a chill dinner, I think, unless I'm misremembering Chocolate something. Chocolate covered melon. I've never that even had lots. that. <laughs> and I'm angry, as you can tell. Or like pineapple fresh, sounds good. I love grilled pineapple. Fresh bread with flowers nestled among it. Like, I've never had I that. Know. I don't know. What beautiful bread. <laughs> more, more anime sparkles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the the feasts that they have are, are always this ridiculous. The gala. So it's technically like a private order thing, but the school like knows about it. And it's sort of portrayed as like they have like a fake secret society that's hiding the actual secret society. Right. Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> paying like very a school. close attention to this. I just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was confused why Alice knew about it, though. Yeah, it's like a school of societies, so they can just pretend like they're one that isn't about fighting demons, because yeah. um, that's a little easier. Um, yeah, and that was another moment of tension that Brie experienced with like feeling like an outsider in the order, is that when she goes to the gala, all of the serving staff are black, and then pretty much all of the guests mm -hmm. are white. And yeah. she's like, uh, this feels bad. And mm -hmm. that's another reason why she's trying to leave it. They go to a bar as like an order kids hangout thing. And the abandon with which they're ordering like pictures and food and stuff. This was another moment where I'm like, it, it's so crazy to read about, you know, ostensibly college students just having like limitless pockets. Um, yeah. And like, if I were ever to go to a bar, like it was careful planning and forethought if I was buying any food. Um, and then usually fries, just fries. And we, <laughs> since, since Oberlin town is a college town or at least the little like metropolitan part around the college, uh, like it's full of college kids all the time. So multiple places when I was there, drinks were a dollar during happy hour. Bree's dad comes for a surprise visit when he gives her, I didn't mention this, but her mom's charm bracelet, which is what unlocks her actual memories of her mom telling her about Rootcraft when she was a kid, which has since been like kind of mesmered away mm -hmm. um, because she didn't think Brie was going to actually exhibit signs of the ability because it didn't happen yet when she was young. Mm -hmm. And when he is giving her the charm bracelet, he takes her to breakfast at Waffle House. And the extent to which this made me want diner breakfast yeah. cannot be expressed. Hard for me to even talk about. When she orders pecan waffle with regular hash browns smothered, covered, and peppered. Come on. I want to eat that. If glows still exist, we should go there when you come back. So let's select our badass ladies and rank them. My badass lady is Patricia. I love seeing a therapist depicted in a book. I've mentioned my therapist many times over the course of this podcast. Therapists are great. I don't always agree with Patricia. I think some of the things she doesn't handle 
correctly, mm-hmm. but she's also clearly in a very, very, very complicated situation. And I think it's actually smart that she brings in Mariah, the other student who is, her abilities are more like attuned to Breeze than Patricia's are to help her. But I wish she just would have like, could have been a little more upfront with Brie about it. But then also whenever she talked to Brie in depth about any of it, Brie freaked out and ran away and tried to avoid her. So I don't, I don't know what the right approach is, but Without Patricia's help, I think when Brie had gotten the charm bracelet and had that memory brought back of her abilities, I think it just would have been too much. So like for her to have a motherly figure at all, even, I I think at a time when she's really missing her mom is really powerful. And I want to have therapy outside, but not somewhere where Cell can spy on me. (laughs) I didn't like that. (laughs) My rating for Patricia is The finest, most detailed, beautiful scarf for her to drape around herself. The way her scarves are talked about and mentioned and like the color of the scarf and how it's coordinated to her outfit and like her different gestures with the scarf and like hiding trembling fingers behind it or like warming beneath it. Um, That scarf was basically a character. (laughs) So I want one that is extra special and, you know, protects her from... All these horrible things out in this world, like therapists, are so valuable and we must protect them. Thank you, Patricia. I'm struggling if I want to give my badass lady to Brie or itself. <laughs> Do whatever feels right, my friend. I'm going to give them both badass lady. <laughs> nice. And for Brie, I would like her to continue to develop uh, a relationship with her grandma who lives in her head and through yep, her... she's there. Yeah, through her... At the end, she explicitly says that she feels the three heartbeats within her. Yeah. Hers, her grandma's, and Arthur. And King Arthur Pentrek. <laughs> Amazing. Out. Yeah. It's like a much nicer version of the rag witch. <laughs> Sure, sure, yeah, 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 definitely. (laughs) Can't stop thinking about the rag witch. It's seared into my skull. Uh, And I hope that, like, through getting to know her grandma in that way, she will be able to come closer to all of her ancestors and especially her female ancestors um, who've been dealing with the effects of uh the cost of basically of the white man's crimes that falls on them uh and uh, i hope that she is able to live in a way that makes herself and them proud which she's definitely already doing it so i wish for her to continue along this path as her badass lady reward (laughs) okay okay i wasn't sure if the rating had come out yet No, that's that's my rating for her, I guess. Sorry. Okay, it's what, also what my about, wish for her. What about Cell? And uh, I hope that Cell gets to become a peer, like an actual peer to his peers. Yeah, for sure. I hope he... I think something will happen that will break him free from anxiety that his demon blood will overtake him. But like I said, I think that's a lie perpetuated to yeah, keep the Merlins in servitude. Keep them down. Um, 
Yeah, because like, why aren't the Merlins in charge? They're better than anyone else. So just something to think about. Yeah, so those are my wishes for Bria and Sal and also their badass lady rankings. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, I loved this book. It was really amazing. I hope that all of you have enjoyed our conversation. Um, Please share your thoughts about Legendborn. Both our American and non-American listeners also, we're white and we're trying to talk about this in the most educated possible way, but we probably got some things not quite right. So let us know because we want to grow. And thank you for your patience in listening to us discuss these things. (laughs) Yes. This book was... Dealing with so many really intense, painful themes, but somehow it does end up, I think, working really well and it doesn't feel, I didn't feel depressed by it. No, me neither. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The way that some um, darker books can tend to leave me feeling. And I think there's a lot of hope. I'm excited to see what happens next. I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to check Same. out Bloodmarked. Um, I don't know if we'll cover it for the pod because <laughs> covering another book this long might break us, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but I'll be I'll be checking it out as well for sure. Our next book is going to be Black Hearts in Battersea by Joan Aiken. The next the sequel to Wolves of Willoughby Chase. I know it's a loose sequel, but many listeners have recommended it and said that they love the character Dido who shows up for the first time in that book um and i'm excited thank you so much for listening if you want to connect with us and find silly little things that i put up related to the books we cover you can follow us on instagram at dragon babies podcast on twitter at dragon babies pod and check out our website dragon babies podcast dot com you can check out my instagram also i post my art there pictures of my pets and my plants you know cool stuff Pig and Doodles, P-I-G-N-D-O-O-D-L-E-S, and that's on Instagram. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. Until next time. Bye-bye.